This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hello, and welcome to episode 18 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I interview genomics experts who are shaping our understanding of science and nature. According to the U.S. NIH Genetics Home Reference, almost all human diseases have a genetic component. While some diseases are caused by mutations in only one gene, most diseases are more complex. These complex diseases are associated with a combination of genetic, environmental, and lifestyle factors. Scientists sometimes use genome-wide association studies, or GWAS, to study the heritability of complex diseases. Next-generation sequencing, or NGS approaches, can be used to identify the causal genes and to study the epigenetics of disease heritability. Today, I'm at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, or CHOP, and I'm talking with Drs. Struan Grant and Andrew Wells. Both are faculty members at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, where Struan is Associate Professor of Pediatrics, and Andrew is Associate Professor of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine. Struan and Andrew lead the Center for Spatial and Functional Genomics at CHOP, where they apply high-throughput genotyping and NGS techniques to discover and understand the genetic component of complex traits in children. They started our interview by discussing their academic collaboration in searching for genetic loci, or fixed positions on chromosomes, that are associated with pediatric disorders. First, Struan. I've been at CHOP for about 11 years. I'm on the faculty at the University of Pennsylvania, but based at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and have been really involved in the last decade or so in GWAS, genome-wide association studies of various pediatric traits, given the commitment of CHOP to collecting large numbers of samples. This has led to the uncovering of many loci for pediatric disorders and pediatric traits. And now, working with Andrew Wells, we're following up loci like that, reported by ourselves and others, to try and functionally understand those loci. Uh, I'm an associate professor in, in the Department of Pathology at Penn. Been here at CHOP for about 17 years, and I'm really an immunologist. I've come at this question that Struan and I are researching from a different angle than Struan, and I think it's been a great collaboration in that sense that I'm interested in how your immune system decides whether to respond to a foreign agent or not. We started getting into some of the epigenomic techniques in my laboratory used to study that, and that really then brought me into the realm of, through epigenetics, genetics and genomics, and that's when Struna and I really put our heads together and decided to tackle some of these issues around why do some people, for instance, respond inappropriately to their own self-antigens. A single nucleotide polymorphism, or SNP, is a variation in DNA sequence that occurs at a specific position within the genome. 
There are more than 325 million SNPs in our genome, but their exact frequency varies depending on the population. SNPs, or variants, that are more common in people with a specific trait or disease are said to be associated with that trait or disease. These genetic linkages are commonly identified by using GWAS. GWAS, or genome-wide association studies, is really the study of common variants and their association with disease. And if you have sufficient sample size in the thousands of, say, cases versus controls, and you run them across a genotyping array, you are well-placed if there is a sufficient genetic basis to the disease to uncover genetic associations with that given trait. And over the last decade, there's been great success in almost every complex trait of finding these associations. And the great thing is, in the last decade, complex trait geneticists have general consensus on many of these signals, that everybody replicates them. There's general agreement. So there are these signals, these genetic associations that everybody can hang their hat on. We know that is a tangible observation that we all agree on. While useful, GWAS can only identify a portion of the genetic component underlying a trait or disease. Next-gen sequencing of the whole genome, or the whole exome, that portion of the genome that encodes proteins, can uncover additional rarer variants. Moreover, NGS approaches can also identify which genes are causing the disease. That only explains a proportion of the predicted heritability of a disease. So where's the rest of that missing heritability? Where's that rest of that genetic component? And that's when many investigators have turned to exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing, to uncover additional variants that may be rarer in nature and are not readily detectable doing GWAS with arrays. And depending on your trait of interest, that's been more success than, than in others. And I think still there's probably more of the missing heritability to be found. And I think there's a debate ongoing about how that is going to be best approached. But, you know, our motivation from moving from array to sequencing was to really start elucidating the function. What we're, as a community, realizing is that a GWAS signal doesn't necessarily point to the causal gene, that the gene nearest the signal isn't necessarily the causal gene. So the idea of tying a variant to a gene is still needed. And that's why we have this physical next-gen sequencing approach to variant-to-gene mapping, is what we call it. The remarkable thing that we're finding is that from the point of view of the disease variants sitting in putative regulatory regions, if you look at what genes they uh, interact with, about 70% of them skip the nearest gene and they interact with distant genes, either exclusively or, you know, in addition to that nearest gene. So the days of, or the assumptions of nearest gene to a variant, that assumption is more likely to be wrong, actually, than correct. Andrew described how he and Struen use NGS epigenetics techniques to understand the regulation of gene expression. These epigenetic methods, like ChIP-seq and others, can detect DNA modifications rather than changes in DNA sequence. Most of these modifications involve three-dimensional changes in the structure of DNA protein complexes, called chromatin. We use 
next-gen sequencing, basically for our, all our nucleic acid-based questions. We've moved away from arrays quite a number of years ago. We do a lot of epigenomic mapping, and what I mean by that is there are a number of techniques that can read out what parts of the genome are open, that are accessible to transcription factors, signal transduction uh, networks, as opposed to being wrapped around chromatin and being relatively inaccessible to the environment around it. There are also techniques, chip-seq techniques, where we can look at particular histone marks that tell us something about what's been happening at that gene or that regulatory region and how it may respond to future signals. So the epigenetics really gives you this remarkable insight into not necessarily always just what's going on right now, but how is this gene or this regulatory element going to respond in the future when the next signal comes down the road. We've used three-dimensional chromosome capture techniques that show us the looping configuration of the genome. We've been using those folding, looping techniques to literally capture and identify what are the elements that are likely regulating this gene. And as Struan has uh, uh, worked out and others, that's where the genetic variants are that are associated with disease susceptibility. And they're in those open regions of the chromatin. Most GWAS studies have focused on adult onset traits or diseases. But the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia has really led the effort to study pediatric traits or diseases by performing GWAS in pediatric populations. Well, our focus being at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is pediatric disorders. And given there's been a lot of success with GWAS in pediatric disorders, largely led by CHOP, other children's hospitals have massively contributed as well. I would say the bulk of GWAS has been focused on adult onset traits. CHOP, I think, made a very good strategic decision over a decade ago to say pretty early on in the GWAS era that we should be doing this in kids in parallel while breakthroughs were being made in adults. And indeed, we did find um, loci for traits as diverse as childhood obesity, autism, neuroblastoma, and other traits, type 1 diabetes, for instance. Inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, uh, right, right. With these new approaches that we and others are using, this is really the golden age, I think, of gene discovery for complex traits. Multiomics is an approach in which multiple distinct data sets are combined to look for biomarkers or to understand functional relationships. Andrew agreed that by combining and analyzing these large data sets, including the genome, transcriptome, and epigenome, will achieve a more complete understanding of how genes impact human biology. I think that's correct. I think the epigenome carries so much information, and if you filter it correctly so that you're not you know, looking at too much information, it really leads you to the regions that are likely important. We've also incorporated new CRISPR-Cas-based genome editing and genome modulating technologies to go in and specifically target those variant-containing regions that have specific epigenomic signals to really ask in situ, in the cell, if we cut out or mutate this particular element that maybe is 500 KB in the middle of nowhere, three genes away, which gene is affected? 
In making the switch from GWAS to NGS, Struan and Andrew discussed their biggest challenges. In performing GWAS, DNA is typically isolated from the blood, since every cell and tissue in your body has the same stable genomic DNA. Your epigenome, on the other hand, is more fluid and dynamic, and it changes depending on cell type and environment. Genomic DNA is a very stable component of biology, but now when we're looking at the conformation of the genome, to try and figure out these contacts between remote, potentially remote enhancers and the gene that's underpinning the association, it's very tissue context specific. And so we're needing to get tissues from various different sources and um, we need to fix them in good time at the right appropriate time. So for me, the, the big upheaval, if you will, is the handling of the material. It's much more sensitive than, than genomic DNA. Also, obviously, working with next-gen, just the volume of data is more daunting to deal with. But at the same time, it's revealing so much more. We're getting such great insights. It's a whole new world. The blood is not where your immunity happens. And so we have leveraged our environment here at, at a top pediatric hospital to get access to disease-relevant tissues from kids and adults at Penn to really study the cell types that likely are impacted by those disease variants that are utilizing those distal regulatory elements to regulate the disease-relevant gene programs instead of just sampling the easiest tissue to get. Struan and Andrew mentioned that children's traits are more likely to be genetic than in adults. So studying complex diseases in a pediatric population enables the search for more pronounced genetic variants. Ultimately, their hope is to find novel therapeutic targets for pediatric diseases. The issue of working with kids, again, is a huge honor, actually, with having that sort of material available to you at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, is that our experience in certain traits, for instance, childhood obesity, is that if a child presents with a trait, it's more likely to be genetic than in adulthood. You know, I'm a Scotsman who's lived, lived well, and I'm the consequence of a Scottish lifestyle. Whereas a child who presents perhaps being overweight, it's more likely to be genetic. And that certainly was our experience when we did our GWAS of childhood obesity. We rediscovered a lot of the loci that have been reported in the adults for BMI, but we needed a lot less samples to pick them up. It was, a, it was an easier setting in which to distill out the genetic variants. And with that wealth of discovery, but also the realization that those signals haven't quite taken us to the gene yet, we need to do this extra step. Jones Hospital Philadelphia has been very supportive of Andrew and myself to set up our Center for Spatial and Functional Genomics to really take it to the next, next logical step, which is to find the actual genes which may present themselves as novel therapeutic targets to get that better outcome for kids presenting with these traits. This fact that we can now link these disease variant regions to potentially the correct gene, this gives us a whole new pool of genes that we wouldn't have necessarily been led to through previous strategies, previous approaches. This is leading us to potential new disease targets, therapeutic targets. We've found in some of our, our new analyses genes that have never been associated with this particular disease before, yet they are the targets of existing drugs that are being used for 
a disease over here, maybe successfully, maybe not. And our approach gives insight into potentially that same drug that's been approved and is safe can actually be used for this completely different disease that clinicians would not have thought to use it for. But we have evidence that this might be the case. Both Struan and Andrew believe that epigenomics is going to revolutionize precision medicine in the future. They also believe that identifying new disease genes will ultimately lead to novel therapies based on genome editing-based techniques, like CRISPR-Cas9. Well, I think next-generation sequencing, as it becomes higher throughput, as it becomes cheaper, as it becomes maybe miniaturized, obviously we can incorporate genome-wide technologies to everything that we do, everything that we read out. Every cell has the same genome, but it needs to express different genes and, and it needs to remember what to express and what not, what not to express. So I think we're going to make tremendous advances in that area of understanding cellular differentiation and memory over the next five to ten years with these next-gen sequencing technologies really allowing us to push the way forward. Yeah, I agree that epigenomics is going to be a key part of driving precision medicine. And part of that precision will be also genome editing. And, you know, genome editing has not been around that long. It's been only, I think, a handful of years. Yeah, it's a real explosion. So I think we're going to see some really interesting stuff coming out in the next five to ten years with CRISPR and related techniques. And I think ultimately we're going to start seeing that having therapeutic usage. And if you're going to be targeting genes with CRISPR, you want to know which are the right genes. And that's partly what our mission is. Right. So GWAS has helped scientists to discover genetic variants associated with human diseases, both in adults and in children. NGS studies have expanded this work by helping to identify causative genes and discovering how epigenetics can link disease variants to novel genetic mechanisms. But that's all for now. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. Join me next time for a special podcast in celebration of National DNA Day, April 25th. I'll be talking with Dr. Eric Green, director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, or NHGRI, at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. We'll be discussing NHGRI and their strategic plan based on a 2020 vision for genomics, here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Genomics Podcast.